One of the most influential authors and thinkers of the 19th century was Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy was a Russian writer, penning classics such as War and Peace. But in the 1870s, Tolstoy read a certain book, and he had a spiritual awakening. Though he was raised in the Russian Orthodox Church, he came to understand what he believed the church had been missing for the first 1,800 years, and that was the key to transforming the world, namely pacifism. He began to teach a form of Christian pacifism that prohibited all violence. He became radically devoted to nonviolence, non-resistance, and turning the other cheek. The words of Christ especially convinced him that all Christians were forbidden from any type of violence. But his teachings later evolved into a form of Christian anarchism, a belief that the state itself was evil because it engages in the most violence and deceit. Therefore, he believed there should be no human, human governments exercising any authority over men. Tolstoy went so far as to say there should be no army, no police force, no judges or judicial system. I believe resisting evil was itself evil. And the only way to stop war was by non-resistance. Tolstoy believed humans were basically good. And if others saw your willingness to endure suffering, they would be changed. And he later shared all these views in his uh, work called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And that book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, was later picked up by a young Hindu activist living in South Africa at the time by the name of Gandhi. And Gandhi would later say that Tolstoy's book was the greatest influence on his thinking. And Gandhi also read and was massively influenced by that other book that Tolstoy read that led to his awakening. And Gandhi and Tolstoy actually corresponded together briefly before Tolstoy's death in 1910. And Tolstoy advocated nonviolence as the best means for India to gain independence from the British Empire. And Gandhi took that counsel to heart. He became the nationwide leader of nonviolent strikes and protests that would not stop until India gained independence from Britain. He too was committed to nonviolence, non-resistance, and pacifism, believing the example of suffering willingly endured would transform the world. And there were many others, some before, some after, holding to the same types of views, advocating a type of Christian pacifism. This has included the Mennonites, the Amish, the Quakers, Seventh-day Adventists. All these groups refused to participate in war for this reason. They all believe non-resistance to evil is the way to overcome evil. And these groups themselves came before Tolstoy. They weren't influenced by him. But all these groups, all these people share a common link. They were all influenced by that one, that, that first book Tolstoy read that led to his awakening. The same book that Gandhi read. You might be able to guess what book that is. It was the Gospel of Matthew. And specifically, it was the Sermon on the Mount. It was the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself in his most famous sermon that influenced these thinkers above all. And even more specifically, it was the passage we have this morning. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. So take your Bibles. So you can open there now. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. In our verse-by-verse -verse travel through the Gospel of Matthew, we finally arrive at the passage that, that's probably the most recognizable section, even among those outside the church. And what Jesus says here has spawned popular idioms that are still in use today, like eye for an eye, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. 
And it was Tolstoy's reading of these verses that led him down a path of non-resistance to evil. That goes for Gandhi as well. But we wonder, were these men right? What did Jesus mean by some of his most famous words? And this morning we aim to find out. Let's read this passage, Matthew 5, 38 through 42, or you can listen along. Well, Christ says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Even if you haven't been in the church for a long time, even if you're new to the faith, there's a good chance you've heard these verses or these sayings before. But you should know that Jesus, he's not responding to warmongers. And you read Tolstoy and Gandhi, you get the impression that when Jesus says this, he's speaking in a context of war, like he's guiding us on the path to world peace. That's not the case. The meaning is never divorced from its context and And the context of Christ's words here matter a lot. And what Jesus says here, if you've been with us, you know it. It's not coming in a context of war and peace. But this is a direct response to the contorted teaching of the Jewish religious leaders. Notably how they took the Old Testament law of God and they they distorted it to suit their will, to suit their wickedness. That's a point we've been clarifying throughout all of chapter 5. And through a series of contrasts, Jesus is correcting the false interpretations and applications of the law of God by the Jewish leaders. He's instead setting the record straight on the nature of true righteousness uh, that characterizes his kingdom. So today we come to the fifth of these six contrasts, and he's really saving the best for last. That the final contrast for next week comes with Christ's call not to hate your enemies, but to love your enemies. We'll save that for next time, but we have enough on our hands today with verses 38 through 42, the fifth contrast. You'll again notice how all these contrasts have pretty much the same setup. Jesus is talking to the crowd. He says something to the effect of, you have heard that it was said. You've heard the ancients were told. And then he goes on to give a sampling, not not just of Old Testament law, but of the rabbinical interpretation of the Old Testament law. And that's what he's going to correct. The people themselves, they they don't know better. They don't have access to read or study or interpret the law of God. The people rely entirely on the the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis to tell them what the law says and what it means. But they've gotten it so wrong, Jesus has to deal with them. And he does so like T-ball, really. It's it's easy for him. He sets their teaching up on the T and just knocks it out of the park. He shows them how they've mutilated God's word. And by contrast, he's going to show us the real way. Now, the the way the scribes distorted the meaning of God's word is most evident in the next contrast. Look at verse 43 by way of preview. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That first part, love your neighbor, that comes straight out of the Old Testament. That second part, hate your enemy, that's not from the Old Testament. They added that part. That's their direct addition to the law based on their reasoning that God wants us to love our neighbor. But that means we're entitled to not love, even hate, our non-neighbor, our enemy. 
we'll deal with that one again next time. But that being said, that the scribal distortion to the law is most evident there. It's, it might be least evident in our passage here in verse 38, because here all Jesus does is quote the Old Testament. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's kind of a summary of their teaching. And that does come straight out of the Old Testament. But even though in this case, the scribes and Pharisees did not directly change or add to this part of the law, you can be sure they found a way to twist it. And so we need to understand the context because we want to ascertain what Jesus means with with some of his most popular and profound statements. We want to get these right. And so we need to study and figure these out. Let's do that now. We're going to recycle an outline we've used because these passages all are kind of structured the same. So let's go through this point by point here with this as number one, what Moses said. Let's go back. Let's look at the Old Testament, which is what Jesus is quoting this time. The law of Moses. Let's begin with what Moses said. And that's in verse 38. Christ says again, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what he says here did originally come from the Old Testament law of Moses. It's found in several places, actually. The first is Exodus 21. And there the law deals with personal injury. Uses the example of a man striking a pregnant woman and the child is injured. And so what should be the penalty? Well, Exodus 21, 23 says this. It says, if there's any further injury then you shall appoint as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's a key verse for supporting the sanctity of life in the womb, by the way, side note. But the point is that punishment must fit the crime. And importantly, who is to carry out this penalty? It's not the individual. It says in the verse before, verse 22, it's judges. The execution of this type of justice was left to wise judges appointed in the land. They were to ensure that the penalties of God's law were fairly enacted and carried out without vengeance. You get the same thing in Leviticus 24, 17 through 23, that further applies the eye for an eye law to manslaughter, to personal injury. Then you have one more passage in Deuteronomy 19. And the context of Deuteronomy 19 has to do with bearing false witness. Now, back then, they didn't have video cameras. So for reporting crime, they relied heavily on personal testimony. But, but what happens if you have a person who's, who's bearing false witness, who falsely accuses someone else of wrongdoing, that they're lying? And the law of Moses says that the judges and the priests are to carefully investigate the matter. And if they've found that a person has borne false testimony, well, they shall do to him just as he aimed to do to his brother. Whatever harm he wanted to fall on his brother falsely, that shall be his penalty. And then Deuteronomy 19.21 says this, Thus he shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And together, these are the three main passages in the law of Moses that teach this eye for eye justice. They're often known by their Latin name, lex talionis, which means the law of retribution, the law of retaliation. The essence of this law states that the punishment shall fit the crime. The penalty for a crime shall match the injury of a crime, no less, no more. 
Let me make a few quick points about these Old Testament passages. First, it's common among those who have a bone to pick with the Bible to criticize these laws as harsh, unjust, vengeful. But it's really just the opposite. They're failing to understand the purpose of these laws, that we should never punish the guilty ever whatsoever. That was actually the view of Tolstoy. But this naive view fails to take into account two biblical realities, that humans are not inherently good and that crimes are not victimless. And to let the wicked go free without any punishment robs true victims of justice, and it only incentivizes lawlessness in the land. Look, probably don't have to convince you of this. We're seeing a perfect example of this in our own day. A while ago, California passed Proposition 47, which reduced many crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. That included theft if the objects taken were less than $950. And if that were the case, then there would be no jail time. Bail would be set at $0. This effectively sent the message to criminals that there's no consequence to theft. You will not be held accountable. You'll be let go. Slap on the wrist. And when they finally caught on, can you guess what happened? You have a surplus of very careful crooks who just make sure they stole less than $950 of goods. Even if they were caught, they knew they'd be out the next day, on to the next door. And now we're even seeing an epidemic of smash and grab robberies. These are brazen, coordinated attacks of thefts where, I don't know, 50 people might all join together, go to a retail store, clean it out in a couple of minutes, and the smart ones know to take less than $950 because then... They're good to go. This proposition is not compassionate. It just subverts justice and enables lawlessness. Now, at the same time, it would not be just to take every one of those robbers and cut off one of their hands, like they do in some Muslim nations. But granted, their theft is wicked and it should have a consequence, but maiming them goes well above the seriousness of their crime. But you see, the law of retribution in the Old Testament protected against that as well, against excessive punishment. These eye for an eye directives, they were meant to guard against an unjust leniency on the one side, but also an excessive punishment on the other side. Those who inflict harm or loss upon others should receive a comparable amount of harm or loss in return, not less, not more. That, that is just. Without this protection, vengeance would reign. And you have to understand that, that vengeance is the propensity of the human heart. Taking revenge, it's, it's in us. When someone hurts you or offends you, you want to get back at them. You want to make them pay, but not in like kind. You want to make them pay more. Just go to any playground. You'll see this pet play out amongst even children. It's just in the human heart. Say a guy attends a baseball game with a group of friends. They're doing some drinking. Afterwards, they go to the bars, do some more drinking. But someone else at the bar spills their drink on this guy. He is offended, the offense of spilling a drink. He decides to retaliate, not in like kind, but with his fists. Uh, a fight breaks out. But things escalate, and he ends up beating the guy who spilled his drink on him to death. So it starts with a, a little offense of spilling a drink, and it turns into revenge of murder. That's a true story, by the way. That happened in 2009 after a Phillies game. That, that actually happened. But that the propensity of fallen man is to exact revenge that far exceeds the crime. This is the heart of, of Lamech 
In Genesis 4.23, who boasted, I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Yet the law of retribution in the Old Testament put a check on this. It ensured that punishment did not exceed the crime. It's eye for an eye. It's not life for an eye. It's eye for an eye. And that is just. So the first big point about the law of retribution in the law of Moses is that it's a good and just law. God, through Moses, was giving his people case law to help them sort through damages to person and property. This law guided them on how to uphold justice without excessive leniency or excessive punishment. And the second big point to make about the law of retribution is that it was never given to individuals to carry out. In other words, these laws were always meant for Israel's judges, those with proven wisdom appointed to rightly divide matters and judge justly, to punish the guilty. The whole point was to take the quest for personal vengeance out of the hands of the people. God wanted them to allow appointed judges to be the ones to dole out fair punishment. Only neutral arbiters could right these wrongs. God did not want his own people to take these matters into their own hands. And so that's what we find in in these three passages of the law of retribution in the Old Testament. None of them are meant for individuals. They all are in a context of judges or a type of corporate punishment, uh, judges carrying out these uh, edicts on the people, not individual justice. You can probably see where this is going, but let's just state it. Number two, what rabbis said. So that's what Moses said. That's what the law of Moses said about this law. But now as we do each week, what, what did the rabbis say? What did the scribes, the Pharisees, how did they distort things? Secondly, what, what the rabbis said. We've seen this time and time again, so I'll just briefly repeat the setup. How over centuries, rabbis, scribes, teachers of the law, They started twisting God's law. The Torah had to be interpreted and applied to Israel's changing circumstances, but they took great liberties with that. Liberties that ended up giving them most of the power in the end. They would take passages from God's law, rip them out of context and apply them to to their favor. They came out on the upper hand and no one was allowed to challenge their interpretation. And so there you go. That's how you get a second law built on top of God's law. That's how you get to that point. So our question here is, what did they do with the lex talionis, the law of retribution? Now, as we saw, the clear intent of this law was to promote a fair system of justice and to prevent personal retribution. And these laws were made for the judges of Israel, not for individuals. But as you can probably guess that you in response, I have to exact some sort of vengeance here. It's what God wants me to do. It's like they were obliged to seek vengeance. And over time, this law became the fuel for personal revenge. This is one case also where this rabbinical distortion really trickled down to the people. This, This was the law of the land, you might say. The law of retribution was meant to be applied in the courts, but now it's being applied on the streets with no oversight, no accountability. People were using this law to justify doing what the law did not allow for, namely personal revenge. And so someone on the street might be harmed, offended, 
And they could very well turn into the judge, jury, and executioner, so to speak. Just take their revenge, feel justified by God's law. And that led to its own set of injustices, a bunch of wrongs that made nothing right. The Jews should have known better. If only they had taken into consideration the full counsel of God's word, they would have known very clearly that even though eye for an eye is in there, it's for the judges. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render the man according to his work. We're not to do eye for an eye when it comes to our personal relations. We leave that to the Lord and to the state, to the courts. But this is why Jesus must offer up his correction. He's not setting himself up in opposition to the law of Moses. He came to perfectly fulfill and uphold the law of Moses. No, he's going to show us the heart of God's law, the spirit of the law, which is all about not taking retaliation into your own hands, but leaving room for the vengeance of God. So thirdly now, what Jesus said. Let's, let's hear his words, his correction on not Moses, but on the Jews and how they distorted the word. Thirdly, what Jesus said, which comes in verse 39. He says, but I say to you, and then the first phrase, do not resist an evil person. You have that phrase, but I say to you, and this is now him signaling it's time for his correction. He speaks with his own authority being the divine word of God. This correction here, though, consists of one main principle and then four illustrations. One principle with four illustrations of that principle. The principle is simply this. Do not resist an evil person. That's it. He's going to elaborate on that with these four illustrations, but do not resist an evil person. We, of course, have to ask, what what does that really mean? What does he mean by that? Well, resist means, what do you think it means? To stand against, to oppose, to withstand. It was often used in the Old Testament in the sense of a violent resistance. But the real question here, though, is, is who or what are we being forbidden to resist? The answer in the text says an evil person. Literally in the Greek, the word is poneros. It simply says the evil, the evil. It speaks of evil in a moral or spiritual sense. This could refer to evil in general. But here in the Greek, it's, it's in the masculine with a definite article. So it literally is saying the evil one. Do not resist the evil one. Now, sometimes this is how Jesus refers to the devil. Literally in the Greek as the evil one. He'll do that later in Matthew 6. But we're certainly not being told to not resist the devil here. Jesus himself resisted the devil. We're told to resist the devil all the time. James 4, 7 literally says, resist the devil. The exact same word. 1 Peter 5, 9, though the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, resist him. Same word for resist. So when Jesus tells us, do not resist the evil one, he he certainly is talking about an evil person, an an evildoer, a fellow man. This fits the context. I mean, look at verse 39. It spells it out. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Who's the object of our non-resistance in that verse? It's not evil in general. It's not the devil. 
It's a person who slapped us. It's a person. And so it goes for the remaining verses. We're talking about an evil person, an evildoer, someone who has done us wrong. All right, so the main principle Jesus gives is to not resist an evildoer. And he's going to further explain what he means by that with these four illustrations. That's what they're all about. He's going to elaborate on the principle. But first, I want us to deal with and settle this big question that when Jesus says this, do not resist an evil person, is he making an absolute statement? Because again, Tolstoy, Gandhi, others, they've approached this passage and they've taken it as an absolute statement. Do not resist an evil person in any circumstance. Turn the other cheek, no matter what. This is what led them down a road of radical non-resistance. This is how Gandhi gets to the point where he's writing the British during World War II, telling them to resist Hitler with non-violent means as he's invading or seeking to invade their country. And there are some in Christian circles who likewise take Christ's words as an absolute, again, from Quakers to Mennonites to Anabaptists. This is why they, they boycott all wars. They refuse military service and so on. This right here, this verse. And not surprising, those same groups back in verse 34, they, they took Christ's words to not swear an oath as all, at all as an absolute. That's what led them to the extreme of not swearing in a court of law, refusing to be put under oath by a judge, some even not signing their names on a contract. But just like we found last time that it's crystal clear Christ is not making an absolute statement about not taking oaths or vows. It's equally clear he's not making an absolute statement about not resisting evildoers. And people like Tolstoy and Gandhi, they've been approaching the Bible forever as as a spiritual book that's just ripe for cherry picking. I mean, without any concern for hermeneutics or properly interpreting the word, they just yank whatever they want out of it that fits their agenda and they just kind of leave everything else with no concern. This can lead to absolute absurdity, though, and and it does here. And to argue, to get to the point where you're arguing for no law enforcement, no judicial system, no criminal penalties based on this one phrase, do not resist evil, is absurd. It's just as absurd as misguided middle-aged monks who castrated themselves because Jesus said, if any part of you causes you to stumble, cut it off. But here's where those who take this as an absolute statement go wrong. I mean, for one, they fail to take into account the whole counsel of God's word. The basic principle of scripture interprets scripture. I mean, as with vows, Jesus did say in the previous passage, make no oath at all. But then later in Matthew's own gospel, we see Jesus swearing under oath. Is he contradicting himself? Of course not. He was not making an absolute statement when he said, Take no oath, like we learned last time. Likewise here, Jesus does say, do not resist an evil person. But what does it tell you when we see Jesus and his apostles resisting evil people all the time? It tells you in the mind of Christ, it's not an absolute statement. This is a relative statement. This is a qualified statement. Wrecking the stalls of those who had turned the temple grounds into a marketplace. I'd say that sounds a little different than a peaceful hunger strike. But here's what Jesus was not doing. He was not doing evil. He was not returning evil for evil. And he was not taking personal vengeance. And that gets to the point he's making here. That we must resist evil and evildoers. But we must have nothing to do with personal revenge or vengeance. 
We must have no hatred or animosity in our hearts. We must even love our enemies, which is what he's going to say next, that the crescendo of all these contrasts leads to love your enemies. Now, people like Gandhi are happy to let the Bible contradict itself. He even believed that right here, Jesus was overturning the Old Testament law of God and throwing it out. And big surprise, Gandhi rejected the God of the Old Testament. He also rejected the writings of Paul because they didn't fit his agenda. That's convenient. But no, everything Jesus said and everything said by those filled with his spirit will perfectly harmonize. Just not when you make it out to mean what you want it to mean. It is truly amazing and sadly ironic how many approach the Sermon on the Mount and they end up making the exact same error as the Pharisees whom Jesus is rebuking the whole thing. I mean, how did the scribes and Pharisees get the, the word of God wrong? Well, they didn't take into account the full counsel of the word. They ignored the context of the word and they ignored the, the spirit of the word, paying only attention to the bare letter. But countless today do the same thing. They take now Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. They ignore the full counsel of scripture. They ignore the context and they ignore the spirit of his words, paying only attention to the bare letter. And the result is a new legalism. It's the same as the Pharisees. It's based on the Sermon on the Mount, not the Torah, but it's, it's the same old type of legalism. Let us not make that same error. And regarding the context here, we, we've already established that, that Christ is not making an absolute statement. He's making a, a relative statement. He's giving a contrast to the misinterpretation of the scribes on the lex talionis, the law of retribution. The point he's making is contrary to their warped view that retribution is not for the individual. It's not for you to take the law into your own hands. There is no room for personal vengeance among his followers. You are not called to return evil for evil or resist an evil person with vengeance like they did. Now, this does not mean there is no room anywhere for retribution or punishing evildoers. There is. In the Old and New Testaments, that authority is given to the state, not the church. The church was given the keys of the kingdom. The state was given by God himself, what? The sword. And why did God give the state the sword? For the punishing of evildoers. That's God's own design. That the function of the individual differs vastly from the function of the state. And do you want to see that for yourself? Do you want to see the crystal clear contrast between the individual's response to evil and the state's response to evil? Then turn to Romans 12. I'm trying to make this quick, but turn to Romans 12. Romans 12, after spending 11 chapters laboring to exposit justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul finally gets to the application in the letter to the Romans. And a lot of what he has to say now has to do with how we relate to a wicked world around us. So what does he say? And you'll notice his prescriptions here. He's in, he's in application section. His prescriptions are awfully familiar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 12, look at verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. When we're personally mistreated, we're not to fight back with evil, but good. Verse 19, 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There's room for wrath, just not ours. We're disqualified. Only God is the true judge. We must leave vengeance to him. As for us, we're called to do good to our enemies, to overcome evil with good. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul says here, it's it's the perfect explanation, really application of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not resist the evil person. When someone wrongs you or hurts you, you're not to be brought down to their level to pick up evil and to exact your revenge. You're to, to pick up good and to overcome their evil by good, by enduring their mistreatment and doing them good. That is our call. But you might ask, though, like, but wait, if if we're not supposed to return evil for evil, if we are not to punish the evildoer, who is? Do we we just have to sit and wait for God's wrath to make things right? Well, maybe. But God has made one provision for the punishment of evildoers. And it comes in the very next verse. Remember, in the original Bible, there's no chapter divisions. This is chapter 13, verse 1, but it's just the next verse. So look at chapter 13, verse 1. Of Romans. It's in the same context, the next thought, he says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. God himself ordained governing authorities. He delegated some of his authority to them. This by no means means that all governments are good or even righteous, but they do come with God's authority for one very specific reason. What is that one reason? Verse three, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil here. Paul is calling rulers, God's ministers for good. How? Simply in the fact that they bear the sword to judge evil. And that is still the number one deterrent to evil in a fallen world. Like verse four, there's that evil doer again. The one who practices evil. When they bring evil upon you, you are not to return evil in like kind. You are not to fight fire with fire. You don't pick up the sword. You endure their mistreatment. You trust the Lord. You love your enemies. But... God has authorized the state to pick up the sword and punish that evildoer. It's governing authorities who are to still measure out God's justice and they still operate eye for an eye. That is just. You just have to imagine what would the world look like if there was no justice at all on a human level? In other words, just picture a world of of true anarchy, no governments, 
No courts, no legal system, no police force, no authority structures at all. That was the world Tolstoy envisioned and wanted. He came to view, uh, view all authority structures as evil because they participated in violence and they, they were oppressive. And that may be true in many, if not most, instances of government. But still, governments, they're always going to be the lesser of two evils compared to the contrary. And Tolstoy failed to take into account one huge factor, and that is man's total depravity. Man is not inherently good, but corrupt after the fall. All are born selfish. They will quickly resort to evil, even violence, to serve self, to get ahead, especially to survive. It's only the sword, the threat of punishment, that keeps the wicked in check. And if that's removed, what do you think is going to happen? Just like the time of the judges, when it said in those days, or in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why the time of the judges is one of, of chaos. Even worse, it would be like the time before the flood. That was before when God delegated his authority to man to bear the sword. And so the time before the flood, it was a free-for-all with no human justice. And what was the outcome? Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. The word is Hamas. The same word as the terror group today. That's a Hebrew word for violence. The earth was filled with murder and bloodshed. None of us truly know the terror of lawlessness. There's no force. There's no authority to help the helpless. No one to stop the wicked from murdering you, your family, taking all that you have. We don't know that, that terror, but that is in the heart of man. And I trust you know it's in the heart of man if unchecked by God's grace, if unchecked by the mercy of governing authority. Look, it's kind of revealed, isn't it? Just look at popular culture. Take any like post-apocalyptic book or movie or show, right? Some like virus wipes out most people. You have a few survivors left. They're just trying to survive. There's no more law. What's the picture? And I'd have to say it's probably how things would play out, right? It's, it's lawless. Does that bring out the best or the worst in people? You have evil upon evil. You have unimaginable atrocities. That really happened before the flood. God saw what that looked like before the flood. That's why he flooded the earth. It was time for his retribution. That also explains why after the flood is when God first delegated his authority to man to do what? Listen, Genesis 9, 6. This is after the flood. God tells Noah in the Noahic covenant, he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. What does that have to do with the flood? Why would God say that? Well, it was the purpose for the flood. It was widespread chaos and violence and murder. And God is going to put a check on that through the lesser of two evils, government. What gives any man the right to take the life of another? We have no inherent right. We have no inherent authority over anyone else. Life is precious. All are made in the image of God. Murder is wrong. Only God has the authority to judge and take life, being the creator, being holy and just. But mankind has become so utterly corrupt. What do you do when men turn into murderers? 
Well, God, as, as a form of mercy and for the sake of justice, he has delegated some of his authority to human institutions to exact retribution. Though they may not be perfect and sometimes very far from it, it's the only way to deter a far greater evil upon the land. Sin is lawlessness. And without law and order, sin vastly multiplies. This is why the state must rightly, justly bear the sword. You can see how clear the Apostle Paul makes this. The Apostle Peter says the exact same thing. In one breath, he tells us, 1 Peter 3, 9, not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but a blessing instead. Same thing. Personally, no evil for evil. No insult for insult. That's what you do personally. But in another breath, he reminds us, 1 Peter 2, 14, we are to submit to governing institutions which are meant for the punishment of evildoers. That's what he says, 1 Peter 2, 14. The same thing. Individually, we don't give in to retribution or vengeance, but institutionally, justice must be served. We, we would pursue that. This is what Paul says clearly. This is what Peter says clearly. And this is what Jesus is saying clearly when he offers up his correction. Do not resist the evildoer. There is a place for retribution here below, but it's not our place as individual followers of Christ. We leave that to the Lord, to the authorities. As for us, we will repay evil with good. Do not resist an evil person. Go back to Matthew 5 now. Do not resist an evil person. From here, he goes on to give four illustrations of this principle. And they're going to further elucidate its meaning, really prove its meaning. What does he mean when he says, do not resist an evil person? What does he have in mind? He's saying nothing of war or police forces or government intervention. He's showing us how we are to respond to evil as individual citizens of his kingdom. In four ways, with four illustrations. First, in response to violent insult. Second, in response to legal attack. Third, in response to abuse of authority. Fourth, in response to acts of charity. His counsel is, turn the other cheek. Let him have your coat. Go the extra mile. Give to him who asks of you. These are just illustrations. It's not an exhaustive list, but they still give us powerful, timeless ways we are to live life as citizens of Christ's kingdom in an evil world where bad things do happen. Others will do evil against you. How are we to live? These give us precious instruction. Now, needless to say, especially on a communion Sunday, we're out of time. We're not going to have time to go through these illustrations right now. These are some of the most famous sayings of Jesus. We, we can't shortchange them, give them two minutes each, right? These are worth a second look. So we're going to come back next time to just better appreciate these four timeless illustrations of how we put into practice the call to true non-resistance, which really is about loving your enemies. That is the point to take away here. That's where all this teaching is building to. And Christ is going to show us that even an evil person is to be viewed as our neighbor. That God himself shows a level of common goodness even to the evil. Christ will say down in verse 45 how God shows uh, mercy to the evil. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. 
God shows the evil some measure of goodness, so must we. Especially since we're no better. Realize that we are evil ones too. We're evil before the Lord. We're, we're sinners, lost. The only difference is that we've been made to taste of God's sovereign, transforming grace through the gospel of his son, Christ. And it's the witness of that saving grace that will really transform the world. There is much to be admired in men like Tolstoy and Gandhi's willingness to endure suffering without retribution, but devoid of the gospel, their witness was ultimately powerless to really change lives for God's glory. But we, however, are similarly called to endure suffering without retribution. But as we do so, it becomes a living testimony of a savior who is sent to the world to endure unjust suffering without retribution, dying on a cross for us, to forgive us, to give us a way to be brought back to God and restored. So when we are poorly treated by the evil, we are to endure it graciously. We refuse to seek revenge, just like the Lord Jesus did. We'll see his example next time. We certainly hope the government will intervene, will punish the wicked and uphold justice. We hope they will bear the sword rightly, but we know sometimes they won't. Again, look at Jesus. He was technically executed by the state. Still, we endure knowing God himself is the judge. He will judge perfectly, justly in the end. We're safe and secure in him no matter what happens to us here below. God is our one true hope for life in a fallen world. You need to place all of your confidence in him. We, we don't hope in government. We put all of our confidence in the Lord, knowing only he will right all wrongs in the end through his son. That takes faith, but faith is what enables us to live like Jesus in a fallen world, to respond like Jesus to evil in a fallen world. And that's the, the witness, the testimony the world really needs to be reached, to be changed as well. Much more needs to be said here and applied from this passage, but I already pray you can take to heart and embody what all this is leading to as closing words, what Jesus says in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's take that to heart. Let's do that now. Our Father who is in heaven, we praise your name this morning for your word, which is clear. And we want to pick up the call to be Bereans, to rightly divide your word, to study it carefully because we, we value it so highly. This is your word of truth. It can be easily twisted and made to say what it doesn't mean. We, we don't want to be guilty of that. I pray you always humble us under your word, not coming with our own views and beliefs uh, to the text, but just letting it speak for itself and conforming ourselves to, to your image, to the mold of your word. Here we have a powerful lesson already of, of a call to, to not resist the evil, to not to not give in to the sin that's in our heart that we know, we feel in our flesh the call of our flesh to revenge, to get back at others, from great to small. Someone who spills coffee on us to someone who hit our car. It's in our flesh to exact retribution, but we are thoroughly disqualified for we are just as evil, just as sinful. Apart from Christ, we are just as lost. But humble us by the gospel of a Savior who himself endured unspeakable evil, and the Father's wrath, true wrath, that we might be saved and forgiven, born again, made new, made good, that we might pursue the good, 
now we can actually be equipped to return good for evil. Only in the gospel can we actually do that. I pray we take up that call, even just scratching the surface this morning, the call to to love our enemies, to do good to those who do us evil, and, and to be like our Savior, who willingly endured unjust treatment, did not seek his own revenge, but faithfully entrusted his soul to the Father's care, knowing God would judge in the end. He will save, he will judge. We leave that work to you, Lord, like Christ did as well, knowing our our soul is faithfully uh, entrusted in your hands. Whatever happens to our body, whatever the government does to us, whatever others do to us, we know we're safe in the arms of God. May our hope and confidence be found in him through his son this morning and purify that passion for us as we wait and learn uh, next time more what that looks like in our day-to-day lives. Be with us until then to love our enemies and even pray for those who persecute us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.